Hello again, listeners, and thanks for joining us for another edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, as always, Freddie Cocker, and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Vent. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this cheeky chap is someone whose banter I miss in the workplace every single day. He wasn't just a fantastic work colleague and someone who made work not really seem like work at all, but he's also a genuine, funny and kind-hearted man who does incredible and life-changing work for children in this country who so desperately need it. That man is Mr John Gilmartin. John is a speech and language therapist for ICANN. ICANN is a communication charity that helps children with speech, language and communication needs unlock their potential and ensure no child is left behind because of a difficulty communicating. John, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. First of all, how are you, matey? I'm very good, mate. It's so good to see you. It's oh, been a while. and you, mate. It's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, good, um, good couple of months. Couple of months? Mm, Absolutely. Mm. Um, now, I've given the listeners a big clue there, but for those that didn't quite get the hint, we met and became friends at a place called ICANN, didn't we? We did indeed. And we miss you very much, I oh, have to say. Oh, thank you so much. That's really kind. Um, right, so now we've got that out of the way, shall we get started? Let's go for it. Now that intro brings us nicely onto our first subject, which is ICANN and the work it does. So we're going to go a little bit deeper into how children with speech and language communication needs, or SLCN for short, as we'll call it from now on, can also experience mental health difficulties too. I had such an amazing time working there at ICANN and really got to know the vital work that it does on a daily basis. But for all the listeners who might not be aware of the charity, tell them a little bit more about it, John. Sure. So we've been around, I don't know if you know this either, Freddie, we've been around best part of 130 years. Yeah, no, I did. I was told that. I was told that, definitely. Which is extraordinary. Um, We're a small charity with a very large reach. So what we do, to try and sum it up, we provide outreach services, training, advice. We have a helpline and we have language interventions designed for nurseries and primary schools. We deliver these services through a team of specialist speech and language therapists, of which I'm one. We have some specialist teachers, Mm -hmm. um, commonly known as the advisors, who go into schools, they provide advice, they do mentoring. We go in and do observations. We give quality assurance certificates. And most important of all, from my point of view, we run a confidential advice line. So it's known as I Can Help, and it's a confidential telephone service for parents, uh, carers, grandparents, siblings, and school teachers, anyone really who has a concern about a child, a young person's speech, language, and communication. So focusing a little bit more on, on mental health with, with the advice line, what kind of questions would you get around that in relation to uh, a child's SLCN, uh, confidentially, of course? Oh, absolutely. So without going into individual details about anyone, we're often contacted by parents who are really concerned about quite young children, so two, three years old, who are being affected quite dramatically by a very common condition known as delayed language. And what is that for the listeners who don't know? Well, a little one hasn't got started yet. 
on where they should be. So, you know, we've got markers, they're called milestones. Mm -hmm. And by age one, children should know, you know, a certain, understand a certain number of words and so on and so forth. Now, some children don't hit those milestones. There's not always a reason for it. It's just something that happens. And more importantly to what we're talking about here, it has quite a big impact on their well-being, their sense of self, their confidence. For example, if I were able to wave a magic wand at you and remove your ability to describe how you feel, let's just say I removed your emotional language, that could leave you feeling very frustrated. And unable to express how you feel, you can become isolated, you can withdraw, or quite the opposite, you can, be, you can kind of start to act out as it's sometimes described. So children's behaviour is more often than not related to their communication and their ability to communicate. And for children with, with an SLCN, what's the link specifically between speech and language and mental health? So if we take that a couple of stages further, so young child, age three, delayed language or a, a more serious condition where we know they're going to live throughout their life with a difficulty in communicating, that has a huge impact on well-being, on confidence, on being able to access education, to make friends. As you grow up, it gets worse because there's more and more demands on us to be able to communicate, to get our point across, to socially interact. And if there's a barrier or a series of barriers in the way, it has a huge impact on how you see yourself, mm. where you are in the world, whether you make friends at school as you grow up. How do you do well at school? Do you go on to have a relationship? How do you get a job? All of that stuff impacts hugely on our well-being and in turn on our, our mental health as well. And you touched on it briefly there, but, but specifically, what can be the impact on a child's mental health, say, for example, anxiety or depression or bipolar or anything related to, to mental health, if their speech and language isn't developed, supported or cared for properly? Well, it can have a long term lasting impact. And one example I'll give you, which is, is quite a, an extreme example, but nonetheless, we're looking at somewhere between 62 to 63 percent of young people, particularly young men, who get involved in criminal activity and end up in the youth justice system. 62 to 63 percent of them have a speech, language, and communication wow, need. Wow, it's quite a stark stat, isn't it? It is yeah. huge. So we're looking at well over half, and predominantly young men, adolescent men, who have an either unidentified or untreated communication need. Now, that in impacts their mental health, their well-being, where they see themselves in society, and often they get into uh, criminal activity as a means of, of an escape or mm -hmm. a way of... of having a place in the world, of being able to show that they're there, um, which is a very negative way of doing it, but sometimes people have no other choice. There might be listeners tuning in who were perhaps flagged as having speech and language difficulties when they were children. What are the telltale signs that a child might be struggling if they want to make sure other children they encounter get the help they need? There's a variety of different characteristics that we can look for. Uh, sometimes they are mistaken as being something else. So let's look at very young children for starters. Children around the age of two onwards who aren't starting to put two words together into sentences appear not to always follow instructions. They're sometimes described by adults who don't necessarily see what's going on as being lazy or rude uh, or just not wanting to respond or being inattentive willful. yeah inattentive absolutely mm. and in fact they are in a way inattentive because 
what goes hand in hand with delayed language is poor listening and attention skills. So children don't often respond because in a way their brain hasn't learned that they need to respond when people speak to them. They may not understand long instructions, so at school they won't respond to things. Or if, if a teacher says, tidy up the toys, wash your hands and join the queue for dinner, a child with delayed language is likely to do the last thing they heard, or possibly the first, but not follow a sequence of instructions. So there's another indicator, not being able to follow instructions. And sometimes children will become very withdrawn and isolated, and people will say, oh, he's very shy, or she doesn't like being around other children. But often it's an indicator that they're not able to communicate. They mm. can't get the point across. They don't understand what other children are saying, and so they withdraw. So those are some key indicators. Not doing well at school, academically, um, for slightly older children, uh, is often not. It is often overlooked as an indicator that they're not following what's going on. Mm. If any of the listeners are perhaps parents, John, who are concerned about their child or a child in their life um, with their speech and language, firstly, what should they do? And secondly, what resources are available at ICANN? And thirdly, whom can they speak to about it? Okay, so what they can do is they can reach out and ask for help and support. They can, obviously, I'm going to promote the service of that course, we run. Of course, that's why you're here as well. First and foremost. So they can get in contact with ICANN on our inquiry service, which is open Mondays to Wednesdays, half nine to half four. They may get an answering machine because I'm on another call, but they're entitled and are welcome to leave a telephone number and I will call them back as soon as I can. It's a confidential service. They can talk through their concerns and while I can't diagnose what is going on with the child or young person they're calling about. I can certainly give them direct advice. We can send them an email with resources. There are websites where they can download speech and language therapy activities. I can send them to other services, uh, signpost them on. I can help them refer the child to be seen by a speech and language therapist. There is so many different things that they can do and they can put in place in addition to being seen directly by a speech and language therapist. So first and foremost, Get in touch with us on What's the that number, and the number is 020-7843-2544. Excellent, and we'll put that in the description of the podcast as well. Fantastic, thank you. So Freddie. secondly, um, you know, we talked about resources which are available. What specific resources could you tell us about that, that have helped children with speech and language communication needs? We've got a series of activity cards and these are for age ranges from birth to 18 months, from 18 months to three years, and from three years to five years. And the box set, as a complete set, is known as Early Talkers, but you can buy an individual pack, and they're about seven or eight pounds, and they've got around 30 different activities in each set. And what they do is they create an easy-to-replicate activity for parents and a child, or parent and child, to engage in, which are fun, they're rewarding, there's no testing involved, there's no rote learning of language, but what they do is they create opportunities for children to practice their language skills in a structured way, designed by one of our highly specialist speech and language therapists, and they make it easy for children to then start developing their language skills. And it gives parents the potential to help, help their child catch up without having to have additional specialist input. Those work for many children, but they won't work for everyone. And we're very aware of that, but they're a good starting place. Also, John, how, how can you reassure and guide those parents who are concerned 
about their child's speech and language, that there is help available to them if they need it? Well, first and foremost, if people want to get in touch with us to have a talk through, we can find out for them what's happening in the local area. I can signpost them to other services and charities. So there are still some children's centres available around the country. There are some groups run in local areas by a charity called Aphasic, and there are some speech and language therapy services that run drop-in centres and clinics as well. So if people get in touch with us, we can help them to find out what's happening in the local area and signpost a few services for them. But rather than not call us, we would like people to really pick up the phone, give us a call, and we're guaranteed that we can find something that's of help for them. Excellent. And if anyone wanting to learn more about ICANN, how can they get involved and what opportunities are there for people to do so? They can get in touch again with me or they can send us an email. Uh, we have a volunteer coordinator who would be able to indicate to people where we could make best use of their help. Um, so yeah, if people want to get involved, get in touch with us directly, phone the helpline, ask for John, I'm likely to be the one answering anyway, <laughs> and I'll help direct them to where we can make use of them. Excellent. And we'll put a link of all the resources um, in the description of this pod, as well as if you want to get involved in perhaps doing some fundraising for ICANN as well. I'm sure that the team would, would love that. Be fantastic. Our next topic is one I never really got to talk to you too much whilst we were at ICANN, and that is Tower Theatre Company. As a big theatre buff and former amateur thespian myself, I know all about how wonderful acting can be for one's mental health. I'm also experienced in the dark side of what theatre groups can do to people when perhaps they are a bit exclusionary or pretentious. First of all, John, tell me a bit more about Tower Theatre and your role there. Tower Theatre, otherwise known as the Tavistock Repertory Theatre Company, was formed in 1932. Wow, so very well established then. Very well established. One of the longest running, most successful, non-professional companies, i.e. amateur mm-hmm. companies, in London, possibly in the UK. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> and I got involved with them three years ago. I did some professional training and had an agent for a while. And I was trying to do this kind of in the evenings and weekends. And that wasn't working out too well. I realised that my agent wanted a full-time commitment from me. I wasn't in a position to give it. So I needed to find another avenue. And a very dear friend of mine who's worked in the theatre industry for years said, you should try Tower Theatre. I'd never heard of them. So I started volunteering for them and discovered this extraordinary theatre company. It's run entirely, almost exclusively, by volunteers. We put on something like 17 to 20 shows a year. And everyone involved, the from the directors, the we don't have producers in Tower, but the directors, the stage management, the actors, the set designers, the lighting technicians, you name it. Everyone, the front of house staff, everyone's a volunteer. Everyone does it as an act of love. And we are a huge company and highly successful. And it's quite an extraordinary machine. And through this process, I have found a really, really lovely home for myself and met many, many new friends. But within that, I think I had mentioned to you that, as you know, last year, I had a period of quite serious depression. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of lingering a bit with me still. Mm -hmm. But most days now, I feel well. And I was brave enough to mention this to someone in passing from Tower Theatre who happened to be giving me a lift 
from one venue to another. We were moving some lights. We'd bought a building in Stoke Newington. We had a brand new home. We were going to be there forever. And we were just talking. It was a very exciting time. And I mentioned to this woman, Rowan, that I was experiencing depression. And she was just so, so wonderful and so kind. And she let me talk. And then she talked me through how so many people have come to Tower Theatre in a period of depression or a crisis in their life. And a home, they, they found a good home. A home mm. has been made for them. And that made me feel so safe and so secure mm. amongst a group of people that I may or may not know have experienced depression. But yeah, it felt, it felt like I'd come home. You've, you've basically answered my next question, um, which is amazing. And let's just build on that a little bit. Do you feel like Tower Theatre has given you and many other people a safe space to express themselves? Oh, absolutely, Freddie. Uh, hand on heart. I have never felt so good somewhere. It's become like a second home to me, really. And I, I get an opportunity, as everyone does, to do anything I like within the remit of, of what we do. So if I want to help design sets and paint them, if I want to become an assistant director, or at the moment, which is what I am mainly doing, if I want to manage the bar and the volunteers who drive me round the bend, <laughs> love them all as I do. <laughs> if any of them are listening. <laughs> yeah, oops. Um, you know who you are. I can. I can do any of those things. Or I can just go and see the shows. I can see the shows for free if I want to be front of house. Uh, so just collect tickets, sell programmes. And what's extraordinary about it is that we managed to make it work so well. Mm. We're always kind of just slipping under the wire with things. We're always kind of screeching because we don't have enough volunteers for this. We don't have enough volunteers for that. But we always manage to get the show on. And we always, always manage to have a laugh mm. as well. It'll be all right on the night is a phrase that I've come to know quite well as well, doing my own gigs. So I feel that's a phrase that's very well versed in the uh, theatre industry as well. It absolutely sums it up perfectly. Yeah, it will be all right on the night and it always is. Mm. Do you think acting for yourself and perhaps others is, is a form of escapism? Or do you think it's an art form where people can really truly express who they are or perhaps a bit of both? That's such an interesting question. I think I would agree that it's a bit of both. Mm -hmm. uh, if I reflect on my own feelings about it, I'll give you a, a brief, I'll try and keep it brief, anecdote. When I was at drama school, I went to the poorer school, which was based in King's Cross. Mm -hmm. And it's now moved on. It's now going to become the school and some of the former tutors are, I'm giving them a quick plug here. Go on. Some of the former Let's tutors give a few shout outs. are setting up a, a new school and it's opening, I think, later this year, possibly. Uh, but when I was there, uh, the one of the classes was on reciting poetry, but not in character. You had to do it as yourself. Mm -hmm. So spoken uh, word, performed spoken word. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So standing up in front of an audience and reciting a poem, but not reading it. You, you, had, to, you had to learn so it. So no notes... Just no notes. Literally say it as you but, say it as you see it. Absolutely. But embodying the the emotions and the psychology of the, the language of the piece that you're reciting. And I found that so difficult, almost impossible. It was the hardest thing I felt I had to do at drama school. And I didn't do so well on it. But give me a character, give me someone to pretend to be, but convincingly, 
and I'm absolutely at home. I'm flying, even though the journey to get there is really difficult. So I think for some people, it is about a sense of not so much escape, but it's a sense of liberation. Mm. I feel uninhibited if I'm pretending to be someone else. Mm. So I probably couldn't take all my clothes off on stage and run around stark naked, but I could get close You'd to it. You'd want to though, wouldn't you, at times? It's so tempting sometimes, <laughs> even though it might actually not be appropriate for what you're doing. But that's another story. But no, seriously though, the, the sense of uh, liberation for me about pretending to be someone else, but also what it teaches you about yourself mm. and the sense of identity and sympathy. I, for example, had to play a character who in all likelihood had uh, committed an act of, of sexual violence towards his daughter when she was a child. And this is alluded to in the material and it's very disturbing, but it's not actually ever said. And at first I was horrified at having to play this character and I mm. felt really, I just thought, oh, this is so unfair mm. and, you know, really felt, actually felt sorry for myself. And it was my first, my first role in drama school. And the more I started to try to understand what was going on in his head, the more extraordinary the journey was. Mm. And I didn't ever like the character, but I had to make you as the viewer, as the audience, understand him. And that does extraordinary things to your head. Mm. And it kind of resets how you see other people and why people might behave in certain ways. I mean, that's just one example. Mm. You could be given any character to play and it really opens out how you see what makes people tick. Mm. And that in itself is very good for mental health as well, I mm. find. I think I certainly um, echo your point about liberation. And I think for me, when I was acting, a lot of the time I was being bullied at the same time whilst in school. And I felt like, you know, when you made that point about that liberation of pretending to be someone else, a lot of the time I, I did want to be someone else. I wanted to be someone that wasn't bullied, that wasn't picked on because of all those attributes that were inherent to my identity weren't being loved or being reciprocated back. So that point you made about liberation and, and this, this feeling of utopia being on the stage, was that something that you had as well? Oh, absolutely. Especially when it's something that you've worked very hard on and it's been a journey and you've got there and the end result is that you're doing something that makes you feel different to anything else. There is a sense of feeling that you belong. Mm -hmm. There are moments which are, and in, I'll be absolutely frank and honest about it, it would be untrue to deny this. There are moments when you feel it is all about you, but it's actually you being someone else. And in that moment, you can steal all the limelight, even though you're working as part of a team and that's what makes it work. Mm. That in itself really helps with your your sense of well-being, your mental health, is that it isn't really all about you, mm. but everyone you're acting with in that moment probably feels it's all about them as well. But you're pulling together as a team and that is a really, really amazing feeling mm. when it works well. Mm. On nights when it doesn't, that's a different story, but most of the time it does work so It's well. almost like a metaphorical and a literal spotlight, if that makes sense. It does, absolutely. Mm. What more do you think can be done in the acting community when it comes to mental health um, and ensure that you know actors and actresses can be supported by the theatres they work at or the production companies they are with because I think Tower Theatre is a really good example of how theatres can do mental health well so to speak but I think there's also a lot of examples that we've seen in the Me Too movement we've seen in other sort of areas of the industry where mental health can be very negatively impacted upon by producers or directors 
So, you know, from your perspective, what do you think could be done more in the industry itself to, to broach that subject and portray it accurately, but actually treat the actors well when it comes to their mental health too? Gosh, that's a that's a big topic. Mm. I can only really just kind of brush over some of the... That's fine. The, the, the key elements for me, mm-hmm. which I feel very strongly about. We look at some examples of people who have who tragically we've lost, mm-hmm. um, both in the music industry and in the uh, performing industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin Williams. One of my great mind. heroes. One of Absolutely. My great heroes. Yeah. Um, if we look at performers like Prince, George mm-hmm. Michael, mm-hmm. Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. I mean, the list goes on of people who have tragically lost their lives when it seems as though the industry has either turned their back on them or has milked them and exploited them mm-hmm. to the extent that they're left with nothing. Now, I know there's a combination of what people bring to this, but also if we could have a performing arts industry that cared for its performers more, that actually took into account that it's not fair to make people turn themselves inside and out, Mm. to not have a private life, Mm. to actually have a break away from working, Mm. to not have to constantly be chased by the media, to be exploited, to be used. I know that's a very negative uh, summation, but that's what worries me is that Mm. that's a huge amount of pressure for people. And Mm. for someone, for example, like Robin Williams, who lived lifelong with mental illness Mm. and suffered and yet always presented as this happy, jolly man. Mm. And yet when you look back now, it's it's too late when we look retrospectively. There's such a sadness in his eyes and Mm. it's absolutely heartbreaking to think more could have been done, more should have been done. Mm. We need to pay attention when these Mm. things happen. Mm. And I don't know how we start doing that, Freddie. Mm. I don't know how we start to care more about people and less about money. And that's what really worries Mm. me is that the industry drives people through money. Do you think the industry is reflecting society and perhaps society's willingness to chew up these artists or performers and spit them out? You only have to look at something like Love Island. I mean, people were people. We had, we lost two people who have been on Love Island to suicide. I think possibly three, but I think it's two: um, Mike Thalassantis and um, Sophie Graydon. I think. Quote me. Please correct me if I'm wrong on that. But you know, we, there was all this talk when they they lost their lives about you know making sure that mental health is talked about more, making sure that red flags are spotted. But then the minute the next series happened. You know, you see some of these people, same people who are talking about it, talking very disparagingly about the cast on 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 um, social media. And the minute they come out of the, the minute they come out of the island, there's all these headlines about them, and it's this very this tabloid press is very very, um, it's ruthless, so to speak. Um, so I don't know how we break this cycle. Do you know? I see exactly what you mean, and I do agree. It, it isn't all one sided, and you're absolutely right. It's that kind of, it's that debate of, is it demand or is it supply, which is, you know, is it a bit of both? I mean, I don't know. I can never really work out for myself. So if we look at the fallout from, the recent fallout from the Jeremy Kyle show mm-hmm. and the, the tragic outcome for that poor man, mm. and there's so many other people who have been damaged through that kind of process, and yet there are people out there who, who lap it up, who mm. want it, and I, I don't know where, how do we start to unpick that? Mm. Because is it supply? Is it demand? I mean, I don't, I honestly don't know. Mm. I really don't know. 
do you think it's more reflection on society then and reflection on us as people for us to be better and and the, these mediums are just reflecting who we are essentially and it's sort of that elephant in the room you know they're only there because we want it like you say I think there is an element of us exploiting sections of society and community for people who feel actually they desperately need to see or know of someone else who's worse off than them because in a way it's a negative way of reinforcing and saying oh actually I'm okay I'm not as bad as them it's that comparative thing isn't it the comparative thing Mm -hmm. and the sense of yeah (laughs) I'm not as bad as you so there is that element going on I think we also we're with technological developments and austerity two things like that happening because everything develops everything improves by 100% every year doesn't it you know Mm. uh, the hard drive capacity over the years when I was young there were no such thing as computers and hard drives certainly not in homes and we didn't have this kind of media attention and focus through television programs certainly not to any extent these two things are happening together and then on top of that we put austerity so people are living in hardship poverty social exclusion they may or may not have done very well at school and put something on which takes them coming back to escaping from your life that takes them out of their life so they can sit back it allows them to evaluate someone else's life and think oh you're pretty awful compared Mm -hmm. to me there's a sense of having achieved something there's a sense of relief within that and so each is feeding into the other Mm -hmm. i really don't know what we can do to change it other than keeping on trying keeping on saying this isn't good Mm. we need to be better Mm. and we can be better and just finally i think it's really important that the bringing it back to the theater industry that um theater and, and acting as an art form can portray examples of mental health strife and mental health difficulties and mental health issues with with accuracy and compassion um what examples have you seen in in amateur theater in tv and in other art forms of of mental health being portrayed well Wow. Okay, so historically, we have the one and only Hamlet. And the debates and discussion will go on forever. So he's a classic example. That exploration, uh, you know, the, the famous words, I don't need to use them. But people debate, is it about suicide? Is it about existence? Mm. For me, last year, and this kind of comes in and then goes away again, I spent a lot of time not wanting to be alive Mm. and I couldn't put my finger on that because I didn't feel suicidal. I don't feel suicidal. I have never felt like I wanted to take my own life. So this was a very strange experience and it, it wasn't until I was doing some reading last year that someone else put the finger on it for me when he said, I didn't want to die I just simply didn't, didn't want, want to live to live no. absolutely and it's that exploration which I think is what rings true about Hamlet for me in more recent uh, publications and uh, in particular on the radio there was an extraordinary uh, storyline on I know you're probably going to laugh and this I'm one, never, this I'll never laugh at something that's portrayed well, don't worry. Okay, good, good. I'm reassured. Uh, this was quite a journey, but it was in the, the radio drama, The Soap, The Archers, mm-hmm. and they explored coercive control. 
over a number of years to a character who was quite strong but also quite vulnerable. So she was like the rest of us. You had been in a ringside seat for two to two and a half years of watching this woman's mental health be destroyed by someone else mm. and watching her breakdown. Mm. And it was heartbreakingly, amazingly well done. Mm. And it still hurts to remember what that... And she, the performances were mm. extraordinary as well. So there was that case. And in fact, to bring it back to Tower Theatre, we are in the next couple of weeks going to put on a brand new version of Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. And I know the director well because last year she directed our extraordinary production of 1984, which she had as an immersive experience. With Canterbury Tales, they're exploring coercive control in one of the stories within that. And that's been quite a journey for them. They've written their own script. They've devised it, in effect, which is an art form that Mike Lee is quite renowned for. Um, but of course he does it in film and this is for a piece of theatre so they're going to be exploring coercive control in that as well so that's right up front that's yet to happen going to happen in a couple of weeks time Um, but there are an increasing number of stories and actually really well done dramas on television around mental health that people don't always realise that that's Mm. actually at the core of it because it's quite subtle Mm. And that's the issue with, with mental illness, is it can be very subtle. It's not always recognisable. Mm. I remember an episode of, of Cold Feet once, and this is quite an obscure thing for me, because I don't, I don't even watch Cold Feet, but I was watching it on the TV, and there was um, an episode where one of the characters was going through a really big mental health crisis, and he was coming to the point where he wanted to take his own life. And he was sitting in the car, and what happened was there were multiple versions of himself that appeared in the car, and we're telling him, you're worthless, you're a piece of shit, you're all this sort of stuff. And that really mirrored what happened to me when I had a mental breakdown in the middle of a, a university seminar. No one could tell from the outside, but I was sitting there and there was this big mural on a wall. And it was some sort of arts piece that a student had done. And for some reason, these, these, these people on this wall started telling me the same stuff that I heard in this Cold Feet episode. And he ended up going to this cliff top and what was shown was him jumping off, but that was obviously him in his own head imagining what it would be like. And that really reflected to me accurately what it feels like when you're on that brink of sort of psychosis, sort of really on the depths of actually doing it. So I thought that was a really, really, that's, that's one thing that's really stuck out with me as a piece of art form. But what you've said is really, um, is really excellent, actually. If we're going back to Shakespeare and him being one of the first people to really tackle it. And I don't think many people have even, like you said, realise that that's actually portraying mental health. Absolutely. And there are people who do it in a quite explicit or have done it in quite an explicit way when there is no question that that's the issue. And the um, the sadly missed uh, playwright Sarah Kane, who tragically took her own life, very, very clearly, there were no bones, there was no question what she was writing about and what she was portraying in stage in a brutal, honest way with nothing covered up. Mm. That's quite clear. Mm. But it's almost too frightening to want to watch. Mm. And it's the subtleties that often pass us by and people not realising. Because to an extent, some of us, I don't know about you, but... I know I can cover it very well. Mm, and I can too, yeah. And then you have that fear of saying, if I tell people, they might not believe me. Mm. 
And I think in drama with subtleties, that can really help other people to realise, actually, I feel that way too. Mm. And other people might not realise it. And telling, therefore, for me, telling people makes all the difference, but it's one of the scariest things to do. Mm. And finally, you've mentioned the Canterbury Tales um, coming up soon. For anyone who wants to buy tickets or who wants to come along to a play coming up, do you want to give a couple plugs to A, a website they can go on, and B, a few dates of some upcoming shows? Absolutely. Uh, we have a fantastic show on at the moment called Fix Up, and that is on for another week. That ends uh, on Saturday the... When's what date's next Saturday? I think it's the 3rd or the 4th next Saturday. Okay. Yeah. Well, we might be too late for that one in, in <laughs> any case. Canterbury Tales will be on until, I think, the 20th of July. Uh, the website is towertheatre.org.uk. Excellent. We'll put that in the description of the pod as well. Perfect. Come along and see us. Now, we've come to the most interesting topic for me, which is your own personal journey, John. Um, so first of all, just tell me briefly about your childhood, your adolescence and your early adulthood and how those experiences got you where you are today and obviously with the mental health aspect too. Well, I grew up in a smallish town in the east coast of Scotland with a big brother, four years older than me, and big sister, 18 months older than me. And I spent most of my childhood as a human doll to my big sister. Right. And I mean that. (laughs) With the fondest memories, with just extraordinary memories, really. Um, She took me everywhere with her, looked after me. Absolutely absolutely without question did everything for me so much so that by age three i wasn't talking i didn't oh, wow need, didn't okay. need to talk at all right didn't need to ask for anything it was all provided i was looked after all my needs were needs were met so i was the classic child that i mm. now work with and mm. advise parents on i was there myself um however my mom wasn't having any of that she right. um she got that one turned around pretty quickly <laughs> Um, we won't go into her therapeutic approach because it's <laughs> it's not one I would recommend. <laughs> Love you, mom. Anyway, um, age seven, got diagnosed with type one diabetes, mm-hmm. and that kind of threw me into a strange orbit for some years, some good twenty odd years. Mm. Um, however, I was very well looked after. Uh, my mum then became a nursemaid who was strict as hell, and as a result. I'm in the top 1% of well-controlled diabetics. Wow. So do you have to um, do inject insulin? Or? No, I'm on an insulin pump oh, okay. provided cool. by the NHS. Mm-hmm. And one of the many amazing things that the NHS does for people. And I'm part of the Hackney Diabetes Centre. Um, I'm under their care and they are second to none. They're just fantastic. So there was that journey, which had quite an impact on my mental health as a child must be very hard sort of having to do that and maybe having to take yourself out of class to to do that and was there not as much education about diabetes back then as well would I be fair to say that absolutely spot on very little Mm. my mum had never really heard of it when I was diagnosed I was diagnosed in the early 70s and she didn't know what it was Uh, so she had to learn from scratch but yeah I missed quite a bit of schooling I was regularly going back into hospital just to have my levels controlled and that kind of stuff Hit adolescence, rebelled against it, as just about every adolescent does. Stopped taking insulin, made myself very ill, managed to get through all of that. Mm. Got into adulthood and realised actually it was really important to remember 
how I'd been raised as a child by my mum, that actually being that strict was important. Mm. I'll never be as strict as she was. But then, you know, hell. You never are, are I like a little glass of wine or two or three. (laughs) So, you know, just uh, you, you learn to live with these things. But all of that kind of accumulates into you learning to make the most of what you have and recognizing that actually it, it's something you learn to live with and don't let it control you, mm. which again brings us around to our mental health as well. It can control us or we can try and learn to control it. So catching up, I moved out from home in my teens, moved into Edinburgh, had a whale of a time for several years, and then eventually moved to London and set up home in Hackney in 1989. And I've been there ever since. And moved through a variety of different jobs. I worked for a bank. I worked for a solicitor's office first, worked for a bank, then got into social care, doing voluntary work with the Church of England's uh, Children's Society and hit my first period of depression after four years in a housing association when I kind of felt that I just drifted. Mm. And that wasn't true. I'd been really, really successful. I'd had great jobs, but I lost sight of that and thought I just drifted through life, became depressed. And Was that imposter up... syndrome, do you think? Um, possibly. Do you think you kind of yeah. thinking that you were not doing as well as you thought you were? Yeah. Yeah. I'd never thought of that before. Quite possibly, yeah. Um, but what lifted me out of it was starting again, being brave enough to draw a line and start again. And that's up to speed why I became a speech and language therapist. Mm. It was a field I'd wanted to work in for many years, wanted to work on people's communication, but had never heard of speech and language therapy. And a big light went on when I discovered it and decided to take myself off to university in my 30s. And it's fairly late then, the university, yeah. comparatively. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But worth it. Mm. It was worth the wait. It was the right time to do it for me. Mm. So yeah, here I am now. You've, you've also been with, with your partner Martin for a number of years now. If you could, tell me a bit about your coming out story and how that also factored in to the journey that you had on with your diabetes and your mental health and how you interact with society and, and everything else and around that too. Well, where, where I was growing up and when I was growing up, there were no real role models and I didn't know anyone else, certainly older than me, who I could identify as gay. Mm-hmm. But I did have a best friend. Who, and interestingly, we became friends when we were five years old and kind of stuck together like glue and both realised in our early teens that that's probably what we were. Mm. Um, so there was a period of confusion, uncertainty, elements of denial. But then probably around quite early on, around the age of 16, I really knew and... Around the age of 17, I had shared this with my sister, who was fantastic about it. And my big brother knew, I think my sister told him, I didn't, Mm. but he knew and he was just so cool about it. And here's this big fella, best part of six foot two, six foot three, trains a local football team, goes hunting, goes fishing. And the one and only brother he's got turns out to be the local gay, the only (laughs) gay in the village, if you like. (laughs) Um, of course I wasn't because my mate lived in the same town but that's beside the point and the just the sense of wait a minute this seems to be okay with the few people I've told being the people who I was closest to my sister and my brother and I decided it was time to tell my beloved mother mm. and how was that? 
she was extraordinary. She was shocked. She froze, physically froze, when I <laughs> told her. Because it kind of came from nowhere, as it has to. Mm. It just, it, the, the moment was right, and it came out. And my initial sense was, <gasps> oh, can't mm. take that back. Mm. Can't, you can't. Um, it's like mental health, can't, isn't it? Once absolutely. you say it and it's out there, you can't take it back. Absolutely, that's spot on. And there was that horrible feeling and sense of, oh no, what have I done? Mm. But she was amazing about it. I emotionally manipulated her somewhat by saying, I suppose that means you won't love me anymore. And she turned on me and she said, don't you ever say that to me. I will always love you. And in my mind, I was thinking, oh, I'll have to try harder next time. <laughs> um, but no, she was amazing about it. And she then became a bit of an activist with just in the local community and the people she knew. And my mum's from a huge family, a very loving, amazing family. She was from a group of 14 siblings. Mm. Um, spot the Irish Catholics, am I love. <laughs> and they just, my mum outed me to everyone. It was like, no, you want to ask, in the matter then, did you? No, <laughs> that's right. Do you want to ask me about it first? She was like, no, everyone needs to know because I want everyone to know about this. And what was hysterical was, so my mum's my name is Elizabeth, but she's known as Betty. And this is just so, so funny. She got so frustrated because she was telling all her brothers, all my uncles, and she was saying, now I want you to know that John's gay. And they're like, aye, Betty, we know. <laughs> we know that hen. <laughs> And she was so frustrated. She says, have you told everyone? I said, Mum, I think they just take one look at me and they know, okay? <laughs> but what was so lovely about it was the fact that it was absolutely okay with mm. so many... it was normal many and they didn't think anything of it. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Mm. So I was very fortunate. I was very lucky in that respect um, and still feel that way. Everywhere I go now, it's just second nature to me to, to let people know. Mm. And I've not... Once or twice in my life, I've experienced someone that reacted negatively to it. Mm. And even then, I was able to speak to both of those people. And for one person, it was for religious reasons. He was uncomfortable about it, but he remained my friend. Mm. And that was extraordinary as well. And what was really nice about that was for us to recognize that we had a difference to my lifestyle and what, what is innate to me, what feels like it was not about mm. choice. It was just how... I am and who I am was something he couldn't identify with but was willing to have me as a friend anyway and that meant so much mm. and when you initially did did come out did it feel like a weight had been lifted or did you feel like oh crikey what was I stressing about in the first place a little bit of both mm. yeah absolutely mm. it was like mm. whew don't want to do that again in a hurry. Yeah, like running, like running a marathon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. We'll do it once and after that. <laughs> absolutely. You think I'll leave that one for a bit? Mm. Um, so yeah, it did. It took a little while to settle down. So there was an initial feeling of slight crisis, mm -hmm. um, almost like your your heart rate on a monitor would suddenly peak and it would stay up there for a while. Mm. So that well, that was for maybe a couple of weeks. And what helped settle that for me was bizarrely enough just being on a going into town with my mum one day on the bus and I was probably 17 mm -hmm. um it was a weekend and a guy got on and I don't know why I did it I nudged her and I said <laughs> forgive the words I meant he's one <laughs> and I knew you'd like that and she looked at me and she said John and I went what 
And she, she then said with this great voice of intrigue, how do you know? And I think that was both of our introduction to the thing known as gaydar. I was about to say, I was literally about to say that. Was that when you developed your own one? It was. Yeah. That was the first radar came up. The gaydar was, yeah. was turned on at that point. But Were my, you right? I was, I believe. Well, <laughs> now, there's no way of knowing for sure. We'll just leave that one there. No, my mum my became fantastic and attuned at it. And we, in the end, it was like, can we, can we stop for five minutes? She, everybody we passed, she wanted, what about him? What about him? I was like, oh, enough already, mum. So that helped with the settling down again and the sense of it being okay and that it was a, a shared thing. Mm. And she took on, she took it on as part of my identity in mm. an amazing way. And did you act differently at all after it happened, or did you just feel like, right now I can just be me? Very much the latter. It's mm. just I can really be me now mm. because this secret is no longer a secret, and that felt comfortable mm. and secure. Mm. And for anyone who who might be struggling um, to come to terms with their sexuality, for any of the listeners who might be um, really kind of weighing up whether to come out or whether not to what what advice could you give them from your own experience there is well it's I mean it's a difficult one but I was very fortunate mm. I had a very loving family and siblings around me mm. and that and also made friends people at school that I stayed friends with afterwards and my own personal friends outside of school made it very, very easy for me. So I was very fortunate. For others, it's not the same. Mm. The and we should stress that. I mean, it's absolutely. it's different for every single person, isn't it? Um, it's really difficult. It's trying to reassure people that they're not isolated, they're not on their own, even though to all intents and purposes, they are, mm. if they have no one to turn to and no one to speak to. But there are services out there. There's the... I may have the name wrong, but the London Lesbian and Gay Switchboard, as it was known many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. And my other half, Martin, mm -hmm. worked for them many years ago before I, I met him. And then during the time that we first got together, um, which is so long ago, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, but there are advice services out there and they offering mentoring services and support. And please do anyone who's out there, who's worried, who's not sure, who feels isolated, pick up the phone. You can contact Samaritans. You can contact any of the national helplines who will be able to support you and give you some guidance. And just having another voice out there that says it's okay mm. and you're not on your own can make all the difference. Mm. And just finally, I think I think in, in recent times, we've seen this really um, quite disturbing trend of examples where people are perhaps regressing in their acceptance of the LGBT community. You only have to look at the papers in certain examples. Um, how does that make you feel when you see that? Well, last night, just before I went to bed, and it was quite late, there were five short films uh, inspired by the events of Stonewall mm -hmm. in the 1960, 1969. And I thought when I first started watching this short piece from BBC News, that it had happened much earlier. I didn't realize that this happened in my in my lifetime. Oops. Mm -hmm. So I was all of two years old when Stonewall <laughs> Showing your happened. age there. <laughs> Absolutely. Do the sums. But I was just astounded to see that what the impact this had had, that there was a quiet gay bar where people who had a sense of isolation, who felt shut out from society, didn't know anyone else like them, used to go and hang out 
and the police arrived to, as was a pattern at the time, to beat them up and have a bit of violent fun. Mm. <laughs> and the the gay men and the lesbians revolted. Well, let's not just say they revolted. They rebelled mm. and they turned on the police and they actually locked the police in and the police were in danger if more uh, reinforcements hadn't arrived. But this went on for on and off for nearly a week mm. and things were never the same since. Mm. Uh, two years after that, there was the first... Pride March. And looking at what Pride is now, I saw an article on the BBC News saying, have we lost what Pride is about? Well, no, we have not. It's amazing that it's a huge festival, that it's for everyone and anyone. My first Pride Marches in the late 80s and 90s were mixed up with all sorts of different things. There was the the Clause 28, which was around HIV and AIDS, when there was this panic and legislation was passed that we couldn't promote um, homosexuality in schools. I was on marches then saying this is wrong mm. and I think things are better now. So we're seeing people react because there is so much liberation, if you like. Mm. Um, there is so much more acceptance now than ever before, certainly in the United Kingdom and in the United States. And we know that in other parts of the world, it's absolutely not the case, where it's still uh, uh, an offence, uh, mm. punishable by death, and certainly by uh, imprisonment, physical violence. Yeah, yeah. Imprisonment. You only have to look at the recent uh, law in um, the States where they banned transgender people from yeah. serving the military. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So all of that stuff, it might be two steps forward and one step back, but I still think things are much better now for many, many lesbians and gay men and anyone else who feels that they have been pushed out of society and are isolated. I think we're moving in the right direction and we'll continue to do so. So I say, are things getting better? Are things getting worse? I think they're getting better. Now we've come to our final topic of conversation, John, and it's one I have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, I know you alluded to it briefly, but how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Well, I see it as a bit of a spectrum mm -hmm. for all of us. And I can talk to you about how I feel today, but that will be different to how I felt yesterday. Mm -hmm. So I did mention earlier that I'd had a period of what I described as very severe or serious uh, depression mm -hmm. last year to the extent I didn't want to be alive. And I kept trying to find ways through that without using medication mm -hmm. and without having any additional professional help, although I'm so lucky to have an extraordinary partner mm -hmm. and a family and a group of friends that I trust implicitly and who just wrapped their arms around me and when I struggled and wanted to be free they gave me that space mm -hmm. and allowed me just to be me allowed me to be desperate and to be unhappy and to cry myself to sleep and feel completely and utterly pathetic and alone and here I am today having the time of my life mm. chatting to the Fredster <laughs> Well, there are many nicknames I do have, but that is one that you The, the Fredster is one of my favourites. Yeah. And still miss seeing like things like this, okay? So we're jovial and we joke about them. And I said at the beginning that I miss you really much at work. But I do. I miss you so much because you're such a decent guy to talk to. You're a great colleague. And it's little things like that 
that can accumulate when people come into your life and you become very quickly fond of them mm -hmm. and they're a good friend and they go away again. And it's not that you have gone away, you change jobs mm -hmm. and we've stayed in touch, which is fantastic. But little things like that can make a big difference to our well-being and where we see ourselves in the world. And seeing you again today has been a real boost. It's been a, a, a fantastic feel-good factor for me. Um, so I feel on top of the world. I had no idea what this was going to be like doing this. And I had no idea I would have anything to say. And I can't stop. So today's <laughs> a really good day. A couple of days last week, I felt terrible. Mm. And I said to Martin, my other half, that I'm not feeling so good again. And he just gave a little nod. And I thought, I didn't need to tell you that. You know. But sometimes we need to say it to make it real as well. So there's the spectrum for you. I've climbed out from where I was last year. It felt like, and I said to a very, very dear friend of mine, Rachel Chadwick. Hello, Rachel. She's definitely going to listen. She, sure she, she better. Uh, I, I said to Rachel, I feel like I've fallen into a black hole. And, and did she understand what you meant by that? Well, Rachel quoted Stephen Hawking. Mm. who said, who I think may have been the person who discovered or recognised that things come out of black holes again. And she said, yes, but Stephen Hawking said that things come out of black holes again. They just come out different. Mm. And that was extraordinary because it immediately gave me a light at the end of the tunnel of the black hole. And I thought, yeah, I am never going to be the same again. Mm. Even as I was in there, mm. I thought, I can't emerge from this and go back to being who I was. But that, in a way, was quite a good thing because I thought, okay, so I'm going to start something new. I'm not going to be a different person, but bits of me are going to be different. Mm. And when I feel down now, like I did last week, I just remind myself of that. I think, no, you're not, you're not going anywhere bad. Nothing bad's going to happen to you and you're going to be okay. But today, you feel terrible. You feel dreadful. You don't like yourself, you don't like the world, I don't want anyone to look at me on a bad day. So on a good day, I'm five foot five, Mr. Wonderful, and I want everyone to look at me. Mm. And that feels great because you just, you think this is what it means to be alive, to go out and enjoy what's happening around you rather than be fearful and afraid and not want to leave the house. And that on a bad day is how I feel. And I had a few days last week like that, when it was a struggle to get up, face the world. And sometimes you need to stop for a second and rather than just go with it, recognize and then go with it. Mm. Recognize that's how you feel. And that makes a big difference as well. So to quote one of my all time favorite uh, contemporary folk singers, Suzanne Vega, which is a beautiful song called Small Blue Thing. And it opens with the line, today I am a small blue thing. And that, that approach on a bad day can really help. Today I am sad. Mm. Today I am afraid. Today I am lonely. Mm. And you think, how can I be lonely? I'm married to the most wonderful man in the world. We've been together for nearly coming up for 32 years this December. And why? within that, with an amazing family, great friends, and yet I can have days when I feel really lonely. And it's really important to recognize that. And the essence of how we feel 
is important rather than trying to justify. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Um, like, mm. Likewise, on feeling good. Don't try to justify it. Sometimes I think, why, why do I feel so good today? Just enjoy it. Go with it. Don't question it. And allow yourself to feel how you feel. What things do you find in life that perhaps might trigger a part of your mental health? So, for example, for me, um, with my anxiety, if I make a mistake at work, that sometimes gives me a really big pang of anxiety. Or, you know, me, we're both quite jovial. We like to crack a joke. But sometimes you might crack a joke and someone might be offended by that. And I really get that big pang of anxiety when I have that reaction. Sometimes I, I go, I... So, you know, you don't mean to offend anyone. You don't mean to hurt anyone that you're having a joke with. But that sometimes can give me a really big pain of anxiety. What things do you do you find that might trigger them? Trigger your um, mental health? Very similar, actually, to mm. you, Freddie, and what you've just said. Um, you know, me. I'm always cracking jokes, and quite often can slip onto the the borderline of the being a bit inappropriate, mm-hmm. um, not always right for the situation. And I have caused a number of people offence by things I've said without meaning to. Is that like exactly the same? it's horrible isn't Mm. it you feel awful and sometimes part of what upsets me with that is the sense of cringing when you think I'm not that person Mm -hmm. I don't want you to think I'm that person Mm. but they might Mm. and actually being big and grown up an adult is to think well you're just going to have to accept that that's the impression you've given someone or that that's the perception they have of you now Mm. but it's more to be quite honest it's more what I do to myself rather than as a result of what I might have done or said to someone else, which affects me more. It's a lack of confidence. It's a sense of insecurity. There's a, I don't know, it's like there's something in my core which is unsettled mm. and believes I'm not good enough. Mm. And it's amazing that I can even talk to you about this at all. Um, and I have to control that core by not letting it rule me mm. and by thinking, but you are good enough. You do amazing things and you're grumpy and you're allowed to be grumpy. And sometimes you're really intelligent and sometimes you're downright stupid, John. <laughs> and not letting that voice then rule the roost. Letting the voice of other people who say to me, but you are intelligent. Um, as my adorable friend Anne Harrod says to me, John, you're so handsome. And I kind of look <laughs> behind me and go, who, 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 me? <laughs> and sometimes leaving the house, as I say to Anne Harrod, oh, sometimes I leave the house and I feel really handsome. That's the voice I want to listen to. Not the voice of vanity, mm-hmm. although I have that one too, but the voice of reason. The voice that says, you're not that bad. You're okay. And you've achieved extraordinary things. Just getting up some days feels like an extraordinary thing on a bad day. So it's the stuff from within, for me, which is the biggest threat, not the stuff outside of me. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to help improve your mental health? So, for example, when you are going through a bad phase, what things do you do to help yourself get better? Or when you're going through a good phase, what things help accelerate that or maximise that period? A couple of approaches I use one came from some years ago this came from within ICANN so I've been working for ICANN for 12 and a half years 11 and a half years I beg your pardon and we had a former director of human resources who was a specialist in psychometric testing and analysis and we went through a process of having 
members of staff do psych psychometric testing. So you answer a series of questions about how you see yourself and they're analysed and they kind of develop a profile of you, which is one way of, of looking at yourself or someone else looking at yourself. And he drew from it some extraordinary uh, analysis and, and results and described a person to me, but I hadn't said any of this in my answers and I was astonished that it was completely me he was describing and that really upset me mm. and, what, um, and why did it upset you? because I would never have been able to do that myself so he said the things that you're reluctant to do the things you avoid the avoidance stuff and the stuff that you bury so you put it at the bottom of your impile you ignore you don't answer phone calls you do this you don't do that all of that kind of stuff the accumulation of that stuff he said there's something underpinning that that you can deal with really quickly and I'm going to show you how to do it and I won't replicate what he did he came right up to me he said this is what you do John and he shouted in my face two words stop it <laughs> and I was shocked and then he gave me a big warm smile and he put his hand gently on my shoulder and he said John you just need to stop it and I carry that with me every day when I get really low, and I kind of I feel slightly emotional right now, mm. I I have to have the strength to say to myself, "Stop it," mm. and it kind of resets. Mm. It's like turning me off and on again, mm. and I reset. It's like, "Whoa, you're going too far. You're being negative. You're being critical of myself or of others." So stop it really helps. Mm. It allows me to reset. Mm. And how do you support your? friends in your own social group who might be experiencing mental health difficulties because I think for both of us we know what it's like to go through really bad phases in our life really dark phases in our life but also some really good phases in our life um, but we know the impact of what can happen if you are isolated so what tools do you use to help your own friends when they have mental health difficulties? Letting people know that you absolutely believe in them and how they feel so validating where people are and how they feel and ensuring that they know they can talk to you whenever they need to. They can tell you how bad they feel or they can come and they can sit with you and they can cry. And Martin and I have a, a dear friend who sometimes needed to do that and she would just come and she could cry for as long as she wanted to. And having a safe space, giving people a safe space to be with you and knowing that they can trust you and that you don't need to tell them what to do mm. is really important. Mm. Sometimes just having that support of someone who says, I believe you and I hear you and I can't solve it, but I can be here. And I think just finally, um, maybe more of a lighthearted question, but we've, we've been good friends for for the whole time that we've known each other and I think some people might look at friendships within when when in workplaces and say oh there's a bit of a slight age gap between that person <laughs> and that person that's a bit odd why are they good pals but why do you think it's important for people to understand and accept that you know friendship like ours can develop in society but also across the workplace as well well from my point of view brats like you need to be kept <laughs> need to be kept in order and I know so much more about the world than you and you 
likewise, inject new life and new thoughts and new ideas into an old man's head like me. And I think there shouldn't be any barriers between younger people and older people becoming good mates because it's not about what age you are for me. It's about how you see the world, about humour. And with you and I, it's about music, Mm. it's about theatre, and it's about respect as well. And I think one of the key things for me is for older people, and I consider myself to be an older person now, to have a bit of respect for younger people and to think it might have been a long time ago that I was your age and the world was very different then. And to have a bit of respect for the fact that actually you growing up in in your 20s is a very, very different place than it was for me. And that actually we we can put our two worlds together. I can have my old man's world without mobile phones and no computers, (laughs) no laptops even. And we can bring in your world and we can rub alongside very well together. And I think that goes across groups and ages and gender. It goes across everything is to have respect for humanity and to allow one another to be who we are. And within that, then there's no bounds in friendship. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. John Matey, thank you so much for being my special guest on this edition's pod and for checking in with me. Whenever we chat, it always makes me feel better. So hopefully you can come back for another edition and a chinwag. As always, thank you to all the venters who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling really generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.